0: Morning everyone. So as uh, as Luke said, we're continuing in our intermittent series under the radar in which we look at the most underrated, underread and overlooked books of the Bible. And the ones that we've covered so far in this series have been overlooked because they're so short. Blink as you're turning the pages and you miss them. Now, Job is not in that category. Job is actually over 40 chapters long, but it's probably overlooked and underread because of, thank you, because of the content uh, topic. It's about suffering. And uh, nobody likes suffering. We don't like going through it. When we're going through it, we try and get out of it as quickly as possible. And so we don't really like reading and thinking and meditating about suffering. It's kind of depressing. And so Job falls into that category and I had pretty much ignored the book of Job for most of my early Christian life. But life being life, every one of us comes across suffering at some point, either our own suffering or the suffering of our loved one. And so in my case, it was my dad. So um, my dad was a real man of faith. Uh, after he retired, he threw himself into ministry work. He uh, ran a connect group, he ran a Bible study group, he ran a prayer group. He was part of the uh, exorcism team at the church that they were part of. He saw some amazing healing, some amazing deliverances. Um, and whenever I used to walk into his study, I'd see on his desk the, the Bible was open and he, there'd be notes in the margins and he'd be taking notes. But then over the course of a few years, he first went blind from glaucoma. Then he developed Parkinson's. Then he developed dementia until it got so bad that he ended up in a nursing home. And so, um, one day, I went to visit him, and, I, and by this point, he was still talking, but you know not quite sure whether he recognized me or not. And I really got angry with God, and I said to him, here is a man who served you faithfully, who loved praying with people, reading your word, teaching your word, and, and now he is dependent on the nurses for all his activities of daily living. H- how is this? Um, useful how could you let this happen how is he any good to you in the state that he is in and I struggled with this for a while and then I felt God saying to me do you think I love your dad because he's useful to me go and read the book of Job and so I I did go that was the first time I read the book of Job and I really scoured it for answers and over the years I've gone back to the book uh, a number of times And it really is an amazing book. Um, Victor Hugo, who is the famous French novelist that wrote uh, Les Mis, said this about the book of Job. He said, tomorrow if all literature was to be destroyed and it was left to me to retain only one work, I would save Job. It is perhaps the greatest masterpiece. Now having said that, Job is not an easy book to read. It's uh, ancient Hebrew poetry. Uh, God did not write it in the form of a self-help psychology book or an essay. Um, It's a story. And it's a story that is steeped in Hebrew tradition. um, And it's a story that speaks to us. If we sit with it and grapple with it and meditate on it, it is incredibly deep. Uh, And it tells us some profound truths about the spiritual world, about the nature of God, the nature of suffering. Um, and I've gone back to it a number of times and I hope what what happens is that God doesn't give us an intellectual or an academic or even a philosophical or a theological answer to suffering He, He gives us a story that is meant to change our perspective and I realized I went to God saying here's my dad, explain this to me why is this happening to me? And it's as if By reading Job, he kind of lifted my head and said, look around and see what I see. So the the story, when you grapple with it, is meant to change your perspective and change your understanding. And over the next two weeks, I hope that as we delve into Job, you will find that happening with you. That it's not a a pat answer to suffering, but as you sit with the story, something inside you changes. Your perspective and your understanding of God uh, changes deeply. So that's my hope as we uh, tackle this. So let's go to the next one. Um, what we'll do is the overview. You've seen already the Bible project. We didn't want to assume that everybody knew the book of Job if, you have, if you've never read it or if you haven't uh, read it in a while. So you now know kind of the plot line of, of the Job story. Uh, We'll look at uh, the background to the book, the spiritual landscape of suffering, Job's response to that suffering, how his friends interact with him, how Job seems to shift in perspective as that's happening, and then next week we'll do part two where we finally get to delve into what God answers uh, to Job. So let's do the background bit. So as you saw in the Bible project, sometimes Job is one of three wisdom books, but for the Hebrews, it was one of five poetry books. So the way they looked at it, those five books went together. Job teaches us how to suffer, Psalms teaches us how to pray, Proverbs teaches us how to act, Ecclesiastes teaches us how to enjoy life, and the Song of Solomon teaches us how to love. So that's how the ancient Hebrews looked at the book of Job. And it is indeed, as uh, uh, AJ said, uh, one of the most ancient books. It's probably the first book in the Bible to be written down. So even though Genesis, obviously, chronologically happens earlier, Job was the very first book actually written down. And we see this because some of the ancient Hebrew is so ancient that the translators have difficulty. Uh, translating some of the words because they're so old and they don't appear in any other book. And to be honest, it's quite fitting that one of the oldest books would answer one of our oldest questions, which is why does a loving God tolerate suffering? It's, it's a question that every, every atheist throws out to a Christian, and it's, ev- it's a question that every Christian, at one point or another, has to grapple with. How could a loving God allow suffering? It actually stands apart from the rest of the Old Testament. So in the introduction to Job, all we know about him is that he was from the land of Uz, UZ. Nobody knows where that is exactly. Perhaps it's near Israel or Palestine. But basically Job sits apart from the rest of the Old Testament. So the rest of the Old Testament is about God revealing himself to the people of Israel but Job kind of sits outside of that. It it probably happens even before God starts revealing himself to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and all of those uh, people. And in that sense, it's actually quite a modern book because it is focused on an individual. It's one person grappling with God, trying to make sense of the suffering that he's going through. And that fits our modern mindset quite well. And as I said, it, it focuses on particularly undeserved suffering, which is a very modern question. Now we know that scripture gives us a, a, a good framework for understanding uh, evil and bad things and suffering. It tells us there's the world, the flesh and the devil. So the flesh in the sense that uh, we have uh, disordered desires and sometimes we make bad decisions. And so we reap the consequences of those decisions. So. If someone decides to smoke two packs a day for 50 years, it's not surprising that they develop lung cancer. That kind of suffering we can kind of make sense of. But when the scriptures tell us there's also uh, the world and the devil, the world in the sense that because we live in a fallen world, bad things happen. We've just talked about the earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. There's floods, there's fires, there's disease. We have malaria, we have covid Um, You know a baby will develop a brain tumor at the age of six months when they haven't been exposed to much yet How do we make sense of that? And there's also the devil where sometimes it is a direct spiritual attack It's those latter two kinds of suffering that we struggle to make sense of and this is what the, the book of Job is targeting How does a loving God particularly allow undeserved? suffering So let's dive in and these first two chapters of Job are like pulling back the curtain and giving us an insight into the spiritual world. So the first thing we see is who are the players in this drama? We read in the first chapter of Job, one day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came with them. So we know that there's, the players in this drama are God, the angels, which in Hebrew are called sons of God, who are spiritual beings who do God's bidding. And then there's Satan, who's a fallen angel. And, and to our first reading, it sounds like Satan is gatecrashing God's meeting. But in fact, when you look at the Hebrew for present themselves uh, before the Lord, it's yatsab, which means to attend the meeting to which one has been summoned. So it loses something in translation here. It sounds like Satan is gate crashing God's council meeting, but in fact, he has been summoned. So right from the start, we know that God is in control. Satan is not barging in, Satan has been summoned and God is very much in control of this council meeting. The second thing we see, we read, is the context. God says, have you considered my servant, Job?" There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil." So this is the image that we're given. Here is God in his throne room, in his command center, as it said in the Bible project video, with the entire universe spread out in front of him. So 93 billion light years across. That means 8 million billion billion kilometers. And so What is the topic of conversation in this command center? It is Job. He's one man among 25 million, on one planet among eight in that solar system, one solar system among 3,000 in that galaxy, one galaxy among two trillion galaxies. So in the vastness of the universe, God sees this one man. In our suffering, we are not forgotten. We are not abandoned. God is not absent. In the vastness of the universe, God knows us, he sees us, and he understands us. Right from the beginning, that dynamic is laid out in the book of Job. Then we see something about the initiation uh, of evil. It says, does God Job, Satan says to God, does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And this is actually quite nuanced. It's not God's idea to start the trial and the suffering, it's Satan's idea. And he, in the Hebrew, Satan is Hasatan, the one who accuses or opposes. So in this kind of heavenly courtroom, the dynamic that we see is that God is the judge, he's the one in control, and Satan is like the case for the prosecution uh, in a legal uh, sense. And this is actually quite nuanced. So in, in some religions, like Islam for example, everything that happens, good or bad, is directly attributed to God. So they see God as completely sovereign, and you have to thank him for both the good and bad things that come directly from his hand. Some other religions, like Zoroastrianism and some of the Greek philosophy that we've inherited, it's seen more as a battle between good and evil, where the two sides are equally weighted, equally matched, and the outcome is in doubt. It depends on what our choices uh, look like. This is a very different picture we're seeing here. What we're seeing here is much more nuanced where God is definitely in control. There's no battle here between evenly matched participants, but it is not God's idea to start the trial. It is Satan's idea. So there is that kind of arm's length um, between God and suffering. And, and even Satan, when he uh, tests and, and tries Job, has to work within the framework that God has set. Is that making sense? Are you following me so far? So we learn that suffering is not God's idea, not not, uh, something that comes out of God initiating it. But you could say, well, God allows it. What's, What's God's response? Why doesn't he stop it? So what we see in the next bit is that God actually constrains and limits where Satan can work and how he can test Job. So he says to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. So he actually limits how far Satan can test Job. So yes, he permits it, but he constrains and limits the suffering that happens. So if we step back, what we see here is a much bigger picture of what is happening in the spiritual realm. These first two chapters, as I said, peel back the curtain and the image that we get is of this wager, this spiritual battle. And and some critics have said this idea of a wager is actually quite demeaning to God. It actually paints God as if he was one of the Greek gods having some fun with some humans and destroying them for his own amusement. And that completely misses the point. The wager here between Satan and God is not um, an actual wager at such, it's an image to help us understand the spiritual battle that is going on. Because what Satan is actually saying to God is that Humans, Job in particular, will only relate to you because they fear you or because they want the good things that you have to give. It's a very transactional understanding of our relationship to God. And God is actually affirming that he has created us with free will, that we can choose him and recognize his sovereignty out of our free will, and that we can relate to him out of love. So it's a relationship-based relationship based Uh, nature of our relationship with God versus a transactional relationship with God. This is the fundamental spiritual battle that is going on from the beginning of time through till now. And if you think this wager with Satan is some ancient Old Testament um, thing that doesn't um, have any relevance anymore, let me um, put to you, Some of you may recognize this fellow, Richard Dawkins. He's probably the poster child for the new atheists. He was a geneticist by training, but he wrote a book uh, called The God Delusion in which he writes this. Do you really mean to tell me the only reason you try to be good is to gain God's approval and reward or to avoid his disapproval and punishment? That's not morality. That's just sucking up, apple polishing, looking over your shoulder at the great surveillance camera in the sky or the still small wiretap inside your head, monitoring your every move, your every base thought. So the the wager that Satan has is exactly the criticism that Richard Dawkins has of Christianity, that our relationship with God is fear-based or transactional, and it's only because of what we can get from God that we worship him. This is the same spiritual battle that has been going on since the beginning of time, and God answers Richard Dawkins 4,000 years before he even poses the question. So let's see how the story develops. So Satan has his, his way. He afflicts Job. If any of you have ever seen the movie Alexander's very horrible, terrible, no good day, this is Job's very horrible, terrible, no good day. In the space of a few hours, he loses his livestock, loses his home, loses his fields, loses his servants and loses his children all in one goal. Despite that, he responds with remarkable equanimity. He says, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And if it stopped there, the book would be one chapter long We'd all marvel at Job's uh, equanimity and um, evenness, even temperedness in the face of suffering and we try, would try to emulate Job. But there's more that God wants to teach us. So in fact, that's just the beginning of the story. Satan returns to God's command center and pushes his argument, pushes the case for the prosecution again. Satan says, skin for skin, a man will give all he has for his own life basically saying, Job only survived this trial because you didn't let me touch his body. Let me afflict him in his flesh, and then you will see what his true colors are and see that he only worships you because of the good things you give him. And so again, God constrains him and says, yes, you can touch his body, but you must spare his life. And that's where the story starts. This is where it really uh, takes off. And for those of you who are interested in medical things, there's been a number of papers written trying to guess what uh, uh, Job was afflicted with. This is a picture of infected scabies. Uh, so the mite bites uh, all over the body, they get secondarily infected, they're incredibly itchy, and you're basically oozing pus from these various sores all over your body. Not to gross you out on a Sunday morning, but just to give you a sense of the kind of suffering that Job is going through. So because it is such a, a, an ugly and disgusting condition, uh, Job finds himself Job finds himself outside the city walls at the at the dump, the city dump he 's been cast aside he 's lost everything. This is a man who had power, who had money, who had status, who had every possession you could imagine, and he is reduced to nothing his own, He has lost his children he 's only left with his wife. His wife has given up hope. She says to him, curse God and die. So he's even lost her support. She's given up saying, you know, there's no point continuing. Um, And so he is utterly alone and he finds himself isolated socially. um, and, And the lesson here is that often, discomfort can be the start of growth. We don't like discomfort but it can often be the start of the season where God can really speak to us uh, and work with us. And and even though Job feels that God is absent, God is very much listening to him and seeing him and um, working in him. In fact, even secular psychology has picked up uh, this idea. There was a a book a little while ago called The Beauty of Discomfort. How what we need is what we most avoid. Um, So there's a recognition uh, generally, that um, this season of discomfort can be a season when we grow. And so as Job is in the city dump, he is joined by his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And that's pretty good of them because they are probably people of status. And so for them to go outside the city walls and sit with him in the dump, a place that would have been unclean, is probably... Um, quite a a humane and compassionate thing to do. And they sit there in silence for seven days just being present with him. And the trouble starts when they open their mouth and Job Job opens his mouth. Because when Job opens his mouth finally after seven days, he lets loose on God. He is angry with God, he thinks God is incompetent, God is absent, uh, and he's crying out for God to uh, account and explain to him what is happening. Each of the three uh, friends uh, keeps, so the, the pattern for the middle kind of 35 chapters of Job is that the first friend talks, Job answers. The second friend talks, Job answers. The third friend talks, Job answers. And they do that three times in three cycles. And basically for those 35 chapters, they say exactly the same thing over and over. They say to him, you must have done something wrong for God to punish you. And Job keeps answering, I'm not aware of anything that I've done, and God has to explain this to me. But it gets more and more heated with each cycle, till basically by the end of the third cycle, the friends are saying to Job, shut up and listen, and he's saying to them, piss off, you're not my friends anymore. <laughs> That's what it, goes, what, what it comes down to. And I have to say, the first few times reading Job, I was... Um, kind of frustrated having read those middle 35 chapters. We know at the end of the book that God is not pleased with these three friends. He says to them, you have not spoken about me what is true. Go and offer sacrifice and ask Job to pray for you. So everything that those three friends say in, the, in those 35 chapters is nonsense. And I kept thinking, well, what? why have I read this? Why have I wasted my time? But it must be in there because God has put it in there. So this time around, I I really looked at those 35 chapters and I took that um, lesson to heart that often it's in the season of discomfort that you grow the most. And what you notice in those 35 chapters in the midst of all this shrill back and forth and this whinging and complaining is that there is a definite progression in Job. Even though he accuses God of being absent. God is doing something in his heart. He's changing his perspective in a way that, God, that Job doesn't seem to even realize uh, that God is working. And I think what, what is happening is that Job is going through his dark night of the soul. Now, this was a, a term coined by Saint John of the Cross, who was a 16th century monk and mystic. And he described this kind of season in your spiritual life where, as he put it, God denudes the faculties, leaves the understanding in darkness, the will dry, the memory empty, and the soul in affliction, bitterness, and distress. It's a very kind of eloquent and flowery 16th century way of saying that there are seasons in our spiritual life where God seems completely silent and completely absent. But through those times, God is doing something in us and bringing us to a place that we could not have reached any other way. That's what the dark night of the soul is meant to be. And, and this kind of season has happened in many famous spiritual um, heroes, I suppose, in, in our Christian life. So Martin Luther went through a season where he wrote, God has turned his back on me once and for all. There is a wall of indifferent silence. C.S. Lewis, after the death of his wife, they'd only been married five years, he'd married late in life, he'd kind of found this joy in, in being married, and after only five years, he lost his wife to cancer. And when he cried out to God, he said he felt a door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside, and after that, silence. And even Mother Teresa, who's a very famous um, you know, nun and, and worked in India, uh, with a very successful ministry, and very famous ministry, when they, after she died and they looked at her diaries, she said she spent from 1948 to 1997, almost 50 years of her working ministry life, with this feeling that there was an untold darkness, a loneliness, a continual longing for God, which gives me that pain deep down in, in my heart. Um, So she probably wins the prize for the longest dark night of the soul, almost 50 years where she was in ministry and just didn't feel God's presence and felt him absent. So this is a a common thing that we don't like to talk about a lot and I think these 35 chapters go on and they're kind of repetitive and frustrating because the dark night of the soul feels repetitive and frustrating and feels like you're going nowhere and that God is absent, but in fact when you look at the chapters, there is a definite progression in, in Job's perspective. So he seems to get these flashes of insight that foreshadow the ministry of Jesus. So you get all this whinging and complaining, and then all of a sudden in chapter 16, Job pipes up and says, "'Even now my witness is in heaven. "'My advocate is on high. "'My intercessor is my friend "'as my eyes pour out tears to God.' So he gets a sense of Jesus who will be this intercessor, who will plead his case with God. Now remember, this is long before God has even started to reveal himself to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and that whole story. This sits completely outside. And yet in the midst of this suffering, I think probably because of this suffering, God is able to give him this revelation of the intercessor that is to come. This is incredibly powerful. And then Job kind of uh, descends into his whinging and complaining again, until chapter 19, when he breaks out into this. This is probably one of the most beautiful verses in the entire Bible. I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end, some, some translations have it, and at the last day, he will take stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. So what Job is referring to here is he's getting a sense of Jesus as a redeemer, not only as an intercessor. He's getting a sense of the resurrection of the body, which is what we pray in the Apostles' Creed, that even though we die, we will be resurrected in our fleshly bodies to see the resurrected Lord. And he gets a sense of the second coming. So again, these are profound truths of scripture that are revealed to Job long before God even starts to reveal himself to the people of Israel. And I think God is able to do that because Job Is sticking with the suffering and continuing to engage with God. Then, then of course, Job descends into his whinging and complaining again, and then in chapter 23, he breaks out into another flash of insight. He says, Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. Some versions have his throne. I would lay my case before him, there, an upright man could argue with him, and I would be acquitted forever by my judge." So here again, Job is getting a sense of the same image that we see in Revelation, where the book's lamb of life will be opened, there will be a, a judgment uh, time, and Job is having this revealed to him long before God even starts revealing himself to the rest uh, of Israel. Now. Granted, these are only partial insights. Job seems to get the sense that Jesus is coming and what his action will be. And of course, we have, we're fortunate in living this side of the cross and the resurrection because we know that Jesus has come. We know that he's been resurrected. We see what the, gospel, the effect that the gospel has had on individual people, on our Western civilization. And so we recognize that Jesus is ultimately the answer that God sends to Job's question. Um, And the way I liken it is that if any of you have ever been lost overseas, you know, and you're asking for directions and you stop somebody and you say, how do I get to this place, one person could say, well, you turn left at the baker and then you turn right at, you know, the little restaurant in the cave. And then by the end of the the directions, you don't know where you are. But if you ask another person, they'll say, come, I'll, I'll walk with you there. And this is what God does. He sends Jesus not to give us an intellectual, a spiritual, a philosophical, a theological answer. He comes to uh, live with us and share our suffering and walk with us uh, through it. But that's getting ahead of ourselves because part two is where next week is where God answers. And we'll flesh that out a a little bit more. So we've covered quite a few chapters. Um, Just to recap, we've seen that... Um, in these first two chapters, what we're, what we're, the sense that we're given is that despite the vastness of the universe in front of him, God sees each one of us and knows each one of us and knows our suffering and he is not absent. We get a sense of this bigger dimension of a spiritual battle that has been eternally raging about what is the nature of our relationship with God. Satan is saying that we are people who will only relate to God transactionally, because of what we get or uh, the fear of him punishing us, whereas um, God is saying that he has created us with free will and love and that we can respond to him out of our free will in love and recognize his sovereignty. Satan is arguing the case for the prosecution and Satan is the one who initiates evil, but God limits and constrains what he can do. And even though Job whines and complains, he continues to engage, even though it's negatively, with God. And we recognize at the end of the book that God is pleased with him. Um, God actually says to the three uh, friends, I'm not happy with you. You haven't told me, you haven't spoken what is right about me. Go and ask Job to pray for you. He's actually pleased with Job and he rewards him. Um, So, you know, God is not afraid of our honest... um, complaints, so to speak, um, and and really wrestling with him when we go through difficult times. In fact, it brings joy to his heart that Job is continuing to engage. Even though he's negative, even though he insults God with incompetence and absence, at least Job is engaging. And as long as you engage, God can work. And that's what we're seeing. And it's interesting here to note that perhaps in our day, it's also a challenge to engage when, when everything's going well. In fact, one of my friends said that if Satan was appearing before God today, he would say about Job, give him everything he wants, make him as comfortable uh, as he can, and let's see if he still remembers you. Um, And in fact, Proverbs, this is nothing new, Proverbs uh, tells us exactly the same thing. In chapter 30, the author of Proverbs asks God to preserve him from great suffering, lest he curse God but also to preserve him from great wealth, lest he forget God. So it's interesting, both great suffering and great um, comfort can be dangers in our time. And I think the lessons in the book here are valid in both of those situations. What we also see is that Job goes through his dark night of the soul, where as far as he's concerned, God is completely absent. But what we can see is that God is actually at work in his heart and in his soul, shifting his perspective and shifting his understanding. Um, So hang on to those thoughts because part two will come next week and we'll see what God actually answers uh, to Job. So in these last few moments, as Luke and the rest of the team are coming up, I just wanna leave you with a couple of questions. Suffering is something that happens to all of us unless you've been incredibly lucky uh, in your life And maybe just to invite you to sit with the story of job and see how it speaks to you in those difficult circumstances and um, Maybe to think back about the dark night of the soul that you've had when you look back at those difficult times Can you see what God was actually working in your spirit? Can you see an understanding that you couldn't have come to any other way because this is part of uh, uh, our growth as Christians and part of maturing, is that we have to go through these dark seasons of the soul. So I'll leave that with you as the team uh, come up.